recording here, recording there. Hi, everybody. Welcome to day two. It's GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and joining me is Jason Boyce, our podcast collaborator. Jason, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience for folks who don't know you, because your backstory plays directly into the topic we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. Hi, Todd. It's good to see you. And um, so, so my background is I'm a longtime Amazon seller, first and foremost. Amazon picked up the phone and called me back in 2003 and asked me to sell my basketball hoops on their website. And it was so long ago, Todd, that I said, why, what? I thought you guys sold books, right? I mean, the marketplace was a brand new concept. Um, Amazon just wanted to be like eBay when they grew up, right? I mean, eBay was the 800 pound grill, if you can imagine that back in 2003. And I began a long relationship as a third party Amazon seller, um, built an eight figure brand, became a top 200 seller, and uh, took my lumps along the way as Amazon came in and kneecapped me at various phases throughout my journey as a big Amazon seller. And so the the story that came out today, I mean, big big news day. Yep. Big news day, and you know, I'll let you I'll let you describe it like only you can in terms of what <laughs> happened, and then we could talk about how my experiences of sort of um, how how they tie into the, sort of the decision that came out, and I can give you my perspective on whether I think this DCAG has a point. Absolutely. And that is exactly why we're jumping on here. This is our emergency podcast, as uh, we call it. (laughs) And uh, Jason, it's funny. In fact, I am researching an Amazon story in my hometown. I'm at the library this afternoon. I literally reserved the community room at the Orland Free Library. And so that's where I'm coming to you (laughs) today. And on my way in, Jason, I found three books that I thought were apropos to the situation. So let me ask you this. Do you think that the Washington, D.C. Attorney General's antitrust lawsuit against Amazon filed today is more like true crime? (laughs) 17 magazines, true crime, to be specific. There's that book. (laughs) The Book of Rule, How the World is Governed. That's my other choice here. Number two. Oh, good this, one. This is a good one. This looks like an excellent book. In fact, there's a chapter in here on the United States. I suggest perhaps we refer to it later. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Or, or lastly, Dreamland Burning by Jennifer Latham. <laughs> Look, I, you know, I think it's a little of all of the above right here. I think we've got, I think we're going to need a little bit, we're going to need to reference all three of those great books you pulled off the shelves. At the Orland at, Free at the, Public at the local Library. Library. Yes. Let me just give them their, their plug by it. name. Coming to you from the community room <laughs> where I can only imagine what kinds of decisions were made momentous to this community over the years related to the sewer fund or to Vincent Haler Park, <laughs> Beeler Field funding. All the, the, the weight of history is upon us in this Orland community room. Jason, I do have to say, we'll recap the suit in a moment, but there are things in this lawsuit that I believe are a little bit flimsy as someone who actually, my own credentials are, I covered the Microsoft antitrust case back in the day. So I do have a little bit of history here that I'm applying, certainly not a lawyer, but I've seen enough of these things come through that I have a sense for generally how they tend to go. So I may be pushing back a bit on some of your observations specific to the legal theory. Of course, I can't speak to the third-party retailer's experience, but I, I think I've, I've got a little bit here, and I think Amazon is on pretty strong footing on a, few, on a couple things, or at least the AG is on weak footing on a couple things that I spotted in the complaint. That said, I want to leave it to you. What happened today? 
Wow. Well, I, I, first of all, I, I'm looking forward to this discussion and um, those are some serious credentials by having followed the, the Microsoft case um, because I think there's a lot of relevance here for sure. Um, so what happened today? So the District of Columbia's Attorney General, Mr. Racine, filed a lawsuit against Amazon claiming an antitrust case that Amazon unfairly raises the prices of sellers. Did I get that right, Todd? Did I get that? I, I have I used the right legal language? I think so. Yeah. Essentially, as I understand it, just to build on that, the attorney general says that by nature of its contracts or policies related to third party sellers, Amazon forces or at least compels those sellers to not offer lower prices elsewhere on other e-commerce sites or even on their own websites and in so doing artificially inflates prices in addition to doing so by charging fees including fulfillment by amazon fees that narrow the margin of any given retailer on amazon and require them to effectively have a higher floor for their prices. How's that? That's really good, Todd. Yeah. I mean, look, um, I agree with almost everything in there as a practical matter. And I, like you, much to my mother's dismay, am not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> however, I do know <laughs> I do know how the tactics that Amazon uses to maintain their quote unquote low prices and 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 I know those tactics and I know how they affect sellers. And I know as a practical matter how these play out in the real world. So I'd like to start, you know, we talked about how I was a seller for 17 years. I, I remember very distinctly the very first contract that I looked at, and it was very big. <laughs> it got smaller over the years. They just ended up putting everything online um, and giving you a one pager to sign off on and most recently. But in the, you know, my very first contract with Amazon, the one clause that we highlighted in yellow as a problem was that they required pricing parity. That was the exact language that they put into the contract. I didn't really understand what that was at the time. I was a brand new entrepreneur, right? Brand spanking new. Um, and I was like, what does this mean? They said, well, this means very frankly that you can't sell your products listed on it, that you're listing on Amazon less on your own site, nor on anyone else's site. And we were multi-channel. So we sold on our own.com. Uh, SuperDuperHoops.com was the was the website at the time. We signed that first agreement. That always makes me laugh and whenever you say SuperDuperHoops.com. I know. I, I, it tickles me every time too. <laughs> it's just great. Um, and, um, and, and then we were also selling on eBay and a couple of the other online channels and marketplaces. And we could not list our product less on Amazon. And back in those days, Todd, we tested it, right? I mean, I know I had a signed contract, but yeah, we did. We offered lower prices and discounts and even sale prices at a given moment on other channels. And back then I used to get a phone call from the category manager saying, Jason, you need to raise your prices. I can see that you're $5 less, $10 less. Okay, fine. We'll raise our prices. Then it became an email. And then they sort of automated the system to let it notify you that um, you were no longer price competitive was some of the language that they would use. And then I remember year, fast forward several years, um, maybe close to 2014, 2015, we get a new updated contract. Every few years you had to sign a new agreement. I think they were three to five years. My first contract was five years. And I think after that, they shut them down to like two or three years. 
So I looked at the new one and I remember saying to my brothers, pricing parity is gone. It's no longer in the, great, we can, this is awesome. We can now lower our prices on other sales channels where it's appropriate, where our cost structure is less. And this is a good day. I'm really excited about this. And so we tested, we, we immediately tested it. We started lowering prices on, maybe it was Walmart, maybe Sears, uh, um, uh, Newegg, some of the other online marketplaces. And then we noticed something, noticed something very interesting. Our sales on Amazon tanked. We're talking 30 plus percent. And so, you know, our sales team was like, Jason, our sales are tanking on our best-selling products. What's going on? I'm like, I don't know. So we started to take a look and put it under the microscope a little bit. And we see, wow, when I go to the listing, instead of seeing add to cart or buy now and those big yellow and orange buttons, I see this grayed out see all buying options from the product details page. So I'm like, well, this is funny. There's no orange button anymore. What, or maybe it was green at the time back in 2015 or 2016. What, what's going on? So you click on the see all buying options and it showed we were the only seller in the buy box. Then you had to you know, do an extra click or two. You could still add the product to the shopping cart. I'm like, well, okay, well, everything on Amazon is about instant gratification, right? An additional click may not seem like a big deal to the general public. An additional click in the online purchase path on Amazon is an eternity. It's a really long time. So we thought maybe that was it. Um, okay, why do we have this? We started messaging Amazon, seeing what's going on. They, they didn't tell us anything, no response. Um, and then the ads team came to me and said, hey, all of a sudden our traffic, we can't, we can't pay for traffic to drive um, online traffic on Amazon to our Amazon listing. And this is under the umbrella of sponsored products, sponsored ads. And within the Amazon Seller Central platform, you can pay for placements on the search results page and other places on Amazon to drive traffic of people who are on Amazon searching for a product to your listing. So all of a sudden we couldn't, there was no traffic being sent anymore. There were no clicks. And we're like, what is going on? And so then we realized, and we didn't even have a name for it at the time, but Amazon had kicked us out of our own buy box. We weren't sharing the buy box with anyone. We were, we were a private label seller at the time. And we, we could no longer drive traffic to our listing. So what happens then, Todd? As a practical matter, our traffic dropped, our clicks dropped, our sales dropped, and therefore this magic ranking algorithm that gives you placement on the organic search results pages and elsewhere on Amazon, we started to fall off the first page of search results. And you shop on Amazon, I shop on Amazon. How often do you go past the first page of search results? Not very often. So our sales just really started to tank. And we went back and forth with Amazon. We still didn't get an answer. We And then we started trying everything, throwing you know what on a wall to see what stuck. We raised our prices on all the other channels and like within hours, <laughs> the buy button came back. The, wow. the buy now, the add to cart came back on the product details pages. Within days, our sales had recovered, our ranking had recovered and you know, life was good again. And we thought, damn it. Amazon just took that clause out of the contract and they digitized this thing to make sure that we don't offer a lower price on some other sales channel. So that was not a human being looking at your product and then looking at Walmart and looking at other sites. That was a, a algorithm, a script, a piece of code that was checking in on the situation, comparing products with similar SKUs or similar product ID numbers, whatever it may be, and recognizing that you were offering one of your super duper hoops. That's right. On, on, That's right. On another site, yeah. i.e. Walmart for a lower price. And you're saying 
that in your experience, these two things were related. Yeah, they, they, they were, there's just, there's no other way to put it. Now, eventually later on, as the years went by, Amazon started sending messaging. So you would get an email that said, um, I, I'm going to read, I'm going to read one, right? This is a most more recent one, brand health. And by the way, how does Amazon know this? Amazon uses what's commonly referred to as a scraping tool in, in dev circles. A scraping tool sends bots across the internet to all of its competitors. It uses bots to scan Walmart's website. And by the way, all these competitors do it on everyone. They're, they're scanning Amazon's website too. They, Amazon's bots will scan Walmart's websites, Target's website. They'll identify a product by UPC code or product title. And then they'll pull and scrape the price that that product's being listed on and then compare it to what the seller is selling it on their channel. It's all automatic. They can identify what Walmart is selling it for, what Target is selling it for, and then compare it to what Amazon is selling it for or a third-party seller is selling it for on Amazon. And if they find that Walmart or Target are selling it for $10 less, $5 less, 50 cents less, yeah, it gets that low. Um, they'll send you this email that says, brand health, action required. Review offers currently ineligible for being a featured offer on the product detail page. So I'm looking at one from, from a client who is the only seller in their buy box. So there's no other seller. Amazon has kicked them out of the buy box because they have identified that one or more of their offers is currently ineligible for being featured offer in the detail page because those items are priced higher on Amazon than at other retailers. That's an Amazon email I'm reading from. Set your price plus shipping equal to or less than the competitor price or adopt automate pricing for your offer to be featured on the product details page. This is relatively new language that I've, I've started to see. But it used to say you're no longer eligible for the buy box. And we were like, wait a minute, we're the only one in the buy box. What do you mean I'm not eligible for the buy box? There's no one else to compare it to. But it, you know, it seems like a totally innocuous thing, right? Oh, it's just one more click. That's no big deal, right? But it's a really big deal. You know, I, I'm going to give you one more story from um, from a brand that I know. They, I, I can't give you the name, Todd, because they they don't. They're afraid of retribution, frankly. But this brand sold a product, and it was a bestseller on Amazon, and they were excited about the opportunity to, um, you know, offer a product on another sales channel, Walmart.com. They, they listed the product on walmart.com. Walmart had an automated pricing tool that kept bringing the price down. So it kept lowering the retail price, even though the seller had an agreement that Walmart wouldn't do that. They had a, they had a bug, a glitch, and their automated pricing software kept lowering the price. They noticed almost immediately within four to five days that their, their sales on their Amazon listing dropped 30%. By seven days, it had dropped nearly 40%. They kept going back to the Walmart representative saying, please raise the price. I'm getting killed on Amazon. For whatever reason, the Walmart representative could not fix the price. So what did this brand do? This brand made a decision to pull its product off of a website owned by, at least to this date, the largest US-based retailer in the world. Why? Because they were afraid that they would continue to lose their sales on Amazon.com. So think about that for a second. This wasn't a site on, uh, you know, uh, Products R Us or whatever, right? Not some made-up site. This is on the largest U.S.-based retailer's website in the world, <laughs> and they pulled their product off of Walmart 
for fear of the business that they were continuing to lose on Amazon because Amazon online, as we've talked about many, many times on our podcast together, Todd, owns the online market share. Okay, a lot to unpack there. So a few things I need to mention first. Number one, you are clearly coming to this with a perspective and it's the perspective that connected us in the first place. The way that we at GeekWire ran across you originally was in the footnotes of the 475 page U.S. House Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Antitrust. I don't know if this, I can go through all of the different clauses on their name. It starts <laughs> to get ridiculous. Anyway, it was the footnote on that report citing your experience as evidence of some of their findings to the effect of what you're saying here. So clearly you're coming to this with a perspective. I know you've, from what you've told me, also spoken with government investigators in other situations, uh, some of which you may not be able to talk about, I understand. Um, so that's right. you're coming to this with a perspective, understandably. I got to tell you, there are a few things in this lawsuit that strike me as a bit of a reach. I'm not convinced they're an overreach, but let me just run through a couple of the things that hit me as I was going through the complaint. Number one, the contention that Amazon artificially inflates prices online through these approaches that it takes to me is going to be tough. I noticed there was no footnote in this complaint citing a source for that assertion. The complaint generally points to the U.S. House Antitrust Subcommittee's report as evidence. And I got to say, you follow that trail. And frankly, that isn't well-sourced as... No comment, Todd. No comment. <laughs> With the notable exception of your pages, I'm sure. Let me just say, a lot of what they cite in that report is press reports. And granted, it's high-quality press reports. It's deep investigations by the Wall Street Journal into really fundamental issues to third-party sellers that demonstrate Amazon's leverage that it has over these sellers. That said, I, 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 the price argument, the argument that Amazon has an overall inflationary impact on pricing, I think it's tough. And frankly, that was one of Lena Khan's main points, the landmark Yale Law Journal story written by Lena Khan, who went on to become one of President Biden's appointees to the Federal Trade Commission currently. One of her points was antitrust law is outdated because companies can abuse their monopoly even in cases when prices are ultimately reduced by their activity by having other negative impacts on the competitive environment. Price should not be the sole indicator of whether antitrust activity takes place. And in that way, I, it feels like maybe they're just trying to conform this argument that they're making to the current law, and that's the problem. But still, I, it's a tough one. So you're talking about the trees in the analogy that I would use. You're talking about the trees. I am not disputing individual trees that you're pointing to. I think you've got some compelling anecdotal evidence. That said, I do not see the forest in this complaint. I do not see them pointing to the Harvard Business Review study, the truly, clearly neutral study showing that prices because of Amazon are higher than they would be otherwise online. And I keep coming back to Brad Stone's book. This tends to happen with his books. His latest one asks the question again, would the world be better off with Amazon or without it? And I think this is a good example. I understand in these specific cases, these prices on these individual products are higher than they would have been if Amazon didn't employ this tactic. But who's to say that you're not 
getting a real steal on fulfillment and shipping. That price that you're paying to Amazon is essentially giving you greater efficiencies and therefore you're able to have a price that would be lower than they would have been in this fictitious world where Amazon didn't exist. Do you see what I mean? I want to see like the real study and maybe that's an impossible thing to do. Maybe that's one of the problems here is that you can't go back and say, what would the world have been? There's definitely examples depending on what your cost structure is for your own warehousing, picking, packing and outbound shipping cost, or who maybe your third party logistics carrier is where I see cases all the time, Todd, where it's still cheaper to do FBA prime. Right, it's still cheaper to use for your Amazon orders to send product to FBA. It's more than just the cost structure, though. Remember, you're also going to get thirty percent lift because you get that Prime badge. So they've got that. They they got that going for them, right? What I'm saying is, if my cost all of a sudden goes up, like it's going to do in June for million sellers, right, who are in FBA, if my cost goes up for FBA and it doesn't go up anywhere else. And because of my cost increase on FBA, I have to raise my price on Amazon. I now have to raise my price on Walmart, right? And so if it wasn't for that, I have to do that because of the fear of buy box suppression and fear of lost sales and revenue on Amazon. If it wasn't for buy box suppression, right? If it wasn't for this digital price fixing, what I call it, uh, not a legal term, that's just a Jason term, is uh, then, you know, I could potentially offer to the buying public a lower price on Walmart. My cost structure is less potentially, right? And so that's the, there's there's one other fee that Amazon has started to institute as well, and that is the fee of advertising. If just following this thread, if you will, Todd, if the cost of ads on Amazon increases greater than the cost of ads on Walmart, right? It's a lot more expensive to drive Amazon traffic to an Amazon listing than it is to drive Walmart traffic to a Walmart listing in most cases right now, right? Speaking generally. As the cost per click goes up on Amazon, because it's popular and because so much business, you know, half a, half a trillion dollars in GMV pushed through that website in, uh, in 2020, if the cost of ads goes up, the cost structure for the third-party seller goes up as well. In order to pay for that, to pay for traffic, to pay for clicks, they're going to have to raise their price, right? So that's another inflationary piece that I'm starting to see trends for where it's more expensive on Amazon. You've got to raise your price on Amazon. That, that cost may not be that high on Walmart or Target or one of these other platforms that are doing their ads, but I still got to raise my price just the same as I do on Amazon. And so now that shopper who has the choice to buy a cheaper product on Walmart that can't do that anymore because of Amazon's buy box suppression. Does that make sense? There's these, these, these cost of ads, cost of doing business on Amazon goes up. Sellers have to increase their price. The minute they increase their price on Amazon, if they're selling on these other platforms, they got to increase price there too. That's bad for consumers. I get that. So here's another thing that's important to point out. Amazon previously, as your story illustrates, made this very explicit. Hey, as a term of your seller agreement, you are agreeing not to offer the same product for a lower price on another site. And as you said, that changed. The time frame I understood was a little bit different from your experience. I thought it was more recent, like 2019. Maybe you were in on the beta for the change in the terms of service. Could be. 
Yeah. Yeah, could be, could be. I was in on the beta. Yeah, I, I, 2015, 2016 in my my memory is when, I you know we kind of celebrated it. The clause is gone. Hey ho, the witch is dead. We can offer lower prices on uh, on our other channels, and uh, turned out to not be the case. That said, I understand Amazon's counter argument to that. If you took the claims of the AG to their logical conclusion, they would essentially be presenting consumers with higher prices which actually goes against, as they point out, the core objectives of antitrust law, which is to reduce prices. One of the, the functions of making sure that there's a competitive market is to make sure that there's the most efficient price and to make sure that prices are not artificially inflated. And so you look at that and it's like, yeah, like if they promoted products that had higher prices and they're exactly the same otherwise, that seems like it would actually be a negative impact on the market. And they made that change. That's what I'm saying is they made that change either in 2019, 2016, whatever it was. And I felt like when they did that, this lawsuit lost some of its steam because it's not an explicit contractual obligation anymore. There is a new clause that I wasn't aware of in that in-between period between 2015, 2016 and now uh, where they have a fair pricing policy now. Okay, it's not called pricing parity. Uh, they, they, they've tweaked the language a little bit and says they've got a fair pricing policy, which basically, again, Jason translation here, we have the right to do whatever the hell we want to do to you seller if we don't think that you have fair prices on Amazon. And what's a fair price to Amazon? You can't sell for less anywhere else than Amazon, right? Because low prices is still a very important part of their game. And I get that. But this is a clear, in my opinion, this is a clear negative for consumers where Amazon's cost structure for sellers has done nothing but go up in the last five years and continues to go up as the cost per clicks become more competitive and more expensive. And consumers can't go to another e-commerce store with a lower cost structure potentially for sellers and buy the same product they would on Amazon on another channel because they're going to buy it at the same price. They're going to have to buy it at the same price because any seller worth their salt won't stand by buy box suppression. They'll do whatever they need to to get unsuppressed because it's devastating to their business. I realize that's one way to look at it, but it could also be viewed from the perspective of the consumer. Yes, I am focusing on that buy box. It's the way the user interface works. I would actually prefer to have the product in that place with the lowest price and the best shipping. So that's where Amazon's policy is actually working in the interest of those customers. And then you get into the whole debate of, wait a second, aren't third-party sellers customers? And you know, I've pinned Jay Carney down on this. This is one of the things that I was able to pin him down on. It was a quick boom, boom question on stage once. And I asked him this and I said, wait, do you consider third-party sellers customers? And he said, yes, it was very clear, unequivocal in a way that you don't often hear from people who grew up in DC politics. So. I'm just saying, again, here, you have a situation where Amazon's got a pretty good argument looking at this. I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't buy, I don't, I don't buy how having to pay, no, no look, let, let's back up for one second, okay? Amazon has the clearest, fastest path to purchase online. You go there, if you're, especially if you're a prime consumer, we're talking nearly 60% of US households have a prime account. Um, you, you, if you have a prime account right from your phone or from your desktop, you can select an item quickly, add it to cart, um, in your cart, you've, they've got 
you know, three or four of your credit cards. They've got all of the addresses you've ever shipped anything to mom, brother, cousin, nephew, niece, right? Everyone, including your home address. You do a couple of clicks. The product arrives at your doorstep in two days, one day, sometimes hourly, right? So that's where Amazon should compete. Amazon should continue to be the best option, the highest selection, the broadest selection, right? At a fair price. And that's where Amazon legally and rightfully should compete by creating a better and better experience. But Todd, you are not going to convince me that Amazon with its market power inflating retail prices on another sales channel that I might choose to buy from for various reasons. Look, maybe I'm a consumer who's unhappy with the treatment that Amazon displayed in the Bessemer Union vote. I'm going to boycott Amazon. I want to go to another channel. I don't think that consumer, that specific cohort right there, is going to be okay with the fact, as they learn this and they read more stories about this, that they're paying more on Walmart because of Amazon's power. That is a problem. And back to Jay Carney, Todd. I speak to a lot of sellers and I'm really happy that he thinks that the Amazon seller is a customer because I agree with him. I think the Amazon seller generates more profit dollars. And you know, we'll talk about this again on the next quarterly earnings call on the day two podcast um, than, than, than AWS, right? They make a lot of money for, for Amazon. But I can tell you when I talk to sellers, they sure as hell don't feel like customers of Amazon. <laughs> they feel like uh, they're part of uh, you know, the Iron Curtain. Uh, that they're dealing with a company that that treats them similarly to the way uh, you know a dissident in the so former Soviet Union would be treated. It, it, you're guilty until proven innocent. You very often don't have a say in anything. The, there's changes that can negatively impact your business at a moment's notice without any notice from Amazon. You know, so so I think I would love I would love Jay Carney to layer on a little bit of that customer obsessed leadership principle onto the Amazon sellers in a, in a more aggressive way. I would. Okay. There is one portion of this suit that bases its claims on the assertion that Amazon has 50 to 70% online market share. 50. All right. 70. Where in the heck does 70 come from? I don't see that sourced anywhere. I even went into the antitrust report from the U S house judiciary committee subcommittee on antitrust that you were cited in, in the footnotes, Jason, I cannot find an actual reference to Amazon's online market share being 70%. This is another place where it looks to me like this lawsuit is a reach and perhaps an overreach. 70%? Where's that come from? Well, I, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it's that high. I, I haven't seen anything from the analysts that, that you know, you and I speak to that, that, that goes as high as 70, but I certainly w wouldn't you know, discount if it's 50 or 60. And look, here's another part of the problem. Lena Khan's coming in and saying, hey, we're in the 21st century. Marketplaces weren't a consideration when the laws were changed in the 1980s or they were created in the 1920s for antitrust, right? We need to update things. Things need to be upgraded, folks. There's no question about it, right? And so this is part of it. I believe, and I've said this publicly many, many times, that a marketplace as consequential as something like Amazon, honestly, a marketplace as consequential as someone like walmart.com should have to report the gross merchandise value of goods sold through the website. The truth is, the truth is, we don't know what the total online 
market share is, Todd. You know why? Because they won't tell us. Okay. The only number that Amazon talks about is 4% of total retail. Well, they don't sell cars and they don't sell gas, which is number one and number three in total retail picture, right? You know, it's, and they're not, they're, they're, they're an online company, right? It's funny. At, so, I mean, yeah, at this point, I feel like, you know, when you start talking about GMV, gross merchandise value, I feel like I feel, oh, I get fired. Up. I feel like I feel at church when I go with my mom here in, in town and uh, to the Lutheran <laughs> church when, you know, the, the pastor always has like his favorite topics, you know, you're like preaching about GMV, like, like he would preach about uh, the scourge of uh, distraction from our devices and how it keeps us away from the divine. So, <laughs> amen. Amen. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> so Jason, yes, give us your gospel of GMV. Go for it, please. Because there are people who do need to hear this for the first time. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look, 60% of, of the goods sold on amazon.com come from third-party sellers, not Amazon 1P, right? One of my favorite anim analysts, Joe Kazakanis, sorry, Joe, I always butcher his last name of Marketplace Pulse, estimated that last year, the gross merchandise value of goods sold on Amazon was $490 billion. Third-party sellers generated $300 billion of those sales. Amazon retail, $190 billion of those sales. Okay, but that's, that's third-party really sales. Number. That's a, that's absolutely, they should be, a, they are a customer. But that's not Amazon's market share. Yeah. That's not Amazon's share of online sales. Where does that number come from? 70%. By the way, I have a hunch where it comes from. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you go and you calculate all the GMV numbers and you, you, you create a pie chart and you figure out how much of that pie is owned by Amazon. I mean, there's analysts much smarter than me that make these estimations all the time. On the low end, you've got eMarketer out there in the high 40s now, thanks to COVID. Amazon got a big bump because of COVID. They were the, the company tailor-made for the COVID crisis. Um, and then on the high end, you got, you got Ron Josie at JMP Security saying it's 60. It's, you know, there are over 600 billion. It's not 490 billion. And so... The whole point is, hey, Jay Carney, why don't you tell us what the real damn number is and stop making analysts who are right. investing in your company guess. I love it when you swear at Jay Carney. That's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Okay. Come on. You can't claim 4% and not show us the goods. Okay. Right? I got to tell and you. I, look, the SEC, the SEC's got a responsibility. They need to require this data. It's the 21st century, everybody. Okay. And Let's see what the real size of these markets are. We don't know. And, we don't know. And to your point, you want to see the value of all merchandise sold on the platform. And that will then give you a yeah. true understanding of Amazon's market share. And by the way, we should point out, doesn't Shopify do this already? Uh, they, th of course, it's much smaller. Shopify does it. eBay has been doing it for years. Um, yeah, the GMV uh, value. I, I, I'm not sure how. I'm, it's funny how Shopify calls themselves a marketplace because they're really not, in my opinion. And uh, uh, most marketplace analysts agree. Um, but but yeah, their their GMV was over 100 billion. 100, I think it was 120 billion, roughly, give or take, plus or minus 10 maybe there. And um, that's the the gross merchandise value of goods sold through a website. Um, that was housed on Shopify's uh, SaaS e-commerce platform. Okay. Now, That's a big number. Now, I got to tell you, here is where the 70% number comes from. I'm convinced. It is a, a game of telephone. It is a game of regulatory telephone. You can see it happening <laughs> in the filings. So at one point, they say Amazon has a 50 to 70% share of the online retail market. And at another point, they say Amazon is estimated to control between 50 and 70% of the online retail sales market. Here's what I believe happened. The 50 came from the House Antitrust Report. The 70 is actually what they're getting from a separate study that showed 
70% of online product searches start on Amazon. Oh, yeah. That makes perfect sense to me, Todd. Thanks for clarifying on that. Look, uh, Jungle Scout just did a survey. I don't know how large the survey was, but 75% of consumers they surveyed who, who first start to search to buy a product online, they don't go to Google. They go to Amazon.com. I say this all the time in my client presentations for Avenue 7 Media is, you know, Amazon has become the internet of products. Facebook knows what you like. They got to keep you there to serve ads. Google knows what you search. They still make majority of their money on search. Amazon knows what you buy. Everything that they have done for the last 25, 30 years has been to get you to buy more and get you to be happier with your purchase at the end of the at, at the end of that 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 funnel right to your door. Okay. Right? Fair, and so fair enough, but so yeah, that that but, but, search share I think it's 75 the, the well, most recent survey but I've seen it as 60. Here's that's, my point. That's a great point. Here's my point though. This is not in my opinion the most rigorous antitrust complaint I've ever seen. The fact that they okay. are claiming even specifically at some points, that Amazon has possibly as high as 70% market share. Paragraph 84, if uh, folks want to read it in the complaint that we'll link to from the show notes. That, Jason, I can see where that comes from. It doesn't have a footnote. It's not rigorously researched. And this thing is going to get shot full of holes in court if it ever gets that far. And market share is a fundamental underpinning of antitrust because before you can prove abuse of a monopoly, you have to prove a monopoly. And if it's as low as in the forties, I'm just saying from a technical standpoint, I understand all, you know, yeah. the, the heartstrings you're pulling with your stories yeah. and, and I'm serious. I get it. I get it. But <laughs> this case, yeah, not so sure. I can't disagree with you. I look, I, again, I'm not a lawyer and I think that the attorney general's office in DC has a really big uphill battle for a lot of reasons. First of all, Amazon's got more lawyers than they do. Right. <laughs> so good luck keeping up with whatever they're going to throw at them. Right. And I think you're right. I think, look, the laws need to be updated. That's what Lena Khan's whole premise was in her thesis. Right. And, and why it was so widely accepted. I think there is agreement that big tech in general has made big societal changes. They've definitely changed the world. Right. And Amazon's definitely a standard bearer in that group. But folks in the legislature have been sort of asleep at the wheel because anytime a company or a moment in industry changes the world rapidly, there's also unintended consequences in their wake. And if we don't put smart people in the room to think through these process, to do rigorous studies, to conduct the research necessary, to ask the what ifs, what happens if one company can give me half a million choices to choose from and deliver to my doorstep in two hours? What are the repercussions of that? If, if the government and the legislatures don't take the time to think through those processes, we run into a problem like where we are right now, where Amazon, in my opinion, is clearly violating a law or at least doing a really smart job of having the outcome of violating the law, even if they've skirted it in the gray areas. And now you've got a point where it's a position, we're in a position where it's really hard to enforce it. It's really hard for someone like a, a, an AG's office or even five AG offices to put together a case against what Amazon is doing. That's a problem. I think it's a societal problem, right? And, and this needs to be addressed. And so, you know, one of the things that I want to say about this online search market share, what I didn't say about these surveys, and you're right, they're not, you know, this isn't something that's going to get a drug approved, right, for, in the pharmaceutical industry, right? It's not a rigorous study, uh, double blind, all that stuff. However, I do this 
every day of the week when I'm presenting to potential clients for our, for our agency. And I go and I search the generic keyword for their product type and I put it in Google. Guess what's on the first page of search results for Google? The majority are pointing to Amazon. If it's not a direct link to amazon.com, it's an affiliate. It's maybe the New York Times with three-fourths of their links pointing to Amazon.com, right? It's, uh, you know, it, it's potentially, you know, if it's not an affiliate, if it's not uh, Amazon itself, then it's some other content site that's additionally driving traffic to Amazon. They're all over the search results page. It's almost impossible to search for any product type at all in this country on Google, on Bing, on Shopzilla, on Price Grabber, the old comparison shopping engines that are still around and still doing sizable business. You go to, you type in any product category in shopzilla.com. Almost the entire first page of search results point to Amazon Marketplace and to Amazon. So I understand where, you know, Mr. Racine is coming from on this. Um, he's got a really uphill battle. If I was betting, I don't think I would bet that Amazon will lose this case. Not at least until we get some updated laws and we get some smart people in here that are going to take a look at what's in the wake of what Amazon has done. They've done everything they were supposed to do. They won e-commerce, right? But what's in the wake? And, and what do we need to do to change it so that we can open up competition and make it a much more fair online marketplace? I will say, I mentioned at the beginning that I did track the tail end of the Microsoft antitrust case. So I was not there at the beginning, but I was there at the end and the long end. It was years that it took them to settle all the state cases. And so you can see here kind of bubbling up from the regulatory and legislative ether, this litigation that's now coming. And the question is, how big is the you know, boiling cauldron going to get for Andy Jassy when he takes over from Jeff Bezos. And so far, if this is an indication, an accurate indication of what can be drawn from the investigations that have been made into the courtroom, into the legal sphere, I don't know that it's going to be to Amazon what the entire antitrust saga was for Microsoft. This does not seem yet that to me. Well, Todd, two things to say. Number one, I have a feeling this is the tip of the iceberg. I have a feeling that this won't be the only antitrust lawsuit well, sure. brought against Amazon. No. Okay. Of course not. Um, I, I get the sense. I mean, I don't know. Andy Jassy has a pretty low heart rate, right? Pretty calm individual. I have a feeling that he's panicking on the inside and asking himself, what have I gotten myself into? Because there will be more. And you know, you caught the tail end of the Microsoft case. I'd love to get your perspective on this because I've always said this and I've always believed it to be true, but you were there. Microsoft didn't lose the case, but they conceded in ways that some could argue made it possible for Google to be born. I mean, would you agree with that assessment based on what you saw at the end of that case? You know, this is, I, I think I've written a story or read a story or blogged a story about this at some point. I, I remember looking into this in some fashion and I can't remember the timing. I believe Google was founded in 1998. You want to Google that for me real fast? Uh, <laughs> and Microsoft started settling, I believe. Well, no, they, in the two, I'd have to look that up. Jason, I think people at Microsoft will argue with you on 1998, this. 1998, very good. September 4th, 1998, Google was founded. Yeah, I, I, I think, the, as I said, people at Microsoft have argued with me about this, and, and they disagree with me. This was my observation from the outside, watching 
well, I mean, Bill Gates, uh, you know, 2000, boy, what was Bill Gates doing in 2000? Oh boy, that's a whole other podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, so watching the degree to which the company kind of went on the sidetrack at the time, it seemed to be derailed, but in essence, it sort of went through this sidetrack, uh, through the tail end of the gates, then through the Balmer years, you know, God, God bless him. That guy tried. And then, you know, Satya Nadella came in to turn it around. I think the antitrust case in many ways sent them on that sidetrack windows Vista. Oh my God, that it truly is a whole other podcast, but Andy Jassy is in a better position. Jeff Bezos is still around. I, I don't know why, but it seems like they would have the discipline to get through this. I mean, look what they did during COVID. I mean, it was incredible. It, you know, you got to tip your cap to them. Now, granted, again, what was in the wake, right? Some very unhappy workers, <laughs> some very uh, exhausted, uh, you know, uh, delivery drivers who aren't truly employees. Um, however, they did pull off uh, literally a Christmas miracle. I mean, they, they didn't break. I, I had predicted the FBA would break in the Christmas season, but they, they sure as hell broke the USPS, right? I mean, I had, I had Christmas packages delivered in March from the USPS because they were so slammed by the volume that went through amazon.com. But will they have the discipline? Look, perhaps, um, you know, if, if the game doesn't change, I would agree with that statement, Todd. I think you're spot on. I think that any AG's office or offices or FTC or whoever else could bring up an antitrust claim has um, their work cut out for them. It's not going to happen overnight. This is going to be a decade, potentially decade long process, which you're familiar with from the Microsoft case. However, what could happen if the game has changed? You know, if the game has changed, could legislators come in here and open up the doors of competition more, right? Could they come in and layer on additional protections for folks like drivers, sellers, workers? I mean, I, I have a feeling that they can. Um, good luck getting bipartisanship on anything. But I, I think I will say this. This is, the one, this is the one area, Todd, that Republicans and Democrats agree upon. Oh, God. Amazon's uh, a problem. Okay, right? but that's Which where the agreement stops. Come on. That, those hearings were so that's painful true. last year. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't get me started on all of the censorship. Oh, I, like, I really, truly wanted to talk about Amazon's business. And we had to talk about, listen to face, all the Facebook censorship, which I recognize is important, free speech and all that. But that was not my sole interest. Okay, Jason, we got to wrap this up. I could talk to you all afternoon. I know, right? We could do this. We do this every time. Uh, just... Don't underestimate the ability of politicians to come together when in the face of a common enemy. That's what I, that's the last thing that I would say. So, you know, to be continued for sure. Hey, we did not get a chance, unfortunately, to refer to the book of rule, how the world is governed. I will reserve that for our next show. However, Jason, I, I did take a, take a peek at the uh, juvenile historical fiction book, Dreamland Burning, which I feel perhaps is more appropriate anyway. And, this is the last. Look, that's a real high. That's real high on the search relevance score on Amazon search for it's, sure. It's about right to be, buddy, this, based on the topic. plug I just gave it. <laughs> so <laughs> here is the last paragraph of Dreamland Burning by Jennifer Latham. But pleased as I am that Greenwood rebuilt, I'll always remember it the way I saw it first. Lights flickering on over the Dreamland theater, families strolling along streets they'd built together. For on that warm spring night, it wasn't just a promise I beheld but a thing real as bricks and mortar and hope. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I love the bricks and mortar reference. Very important. Wow. Until Andy Jassy offered me FBA and then I was truly screwed. <laughs> oh wait, that, line, that last line wasn't in there. I, I don't know where that came from. Oh, that's awesome. That's like adding in bed at the end of a fortune cookie. Yes. I think that's what you just did there, Todd. <laughs> hey, this is a case I know we're going to be following. Um, thank you so much for giving us your perspective. And again, it is your perspective and your experience. And it's fascinating to compare that to what's now coming out in a form that could potentially impact the future of this company and the future of the e-commerce market or at least change the way that people think about it. Thank you, Todd. Always a pleasure. Support your local libraries. They're important. <laughs> that is Jason Boyce. He is the founder of Avenue 7 Media, an agency that works with third-party sellers on Amazon and a former Amazon seller himself. He is also the co-author of The Amazon Jungle. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening to the Day 2 podcast from GeekWire about everything Amazon. Please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcast app, and we will be back soon with a new episode.